If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvelous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry, and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Just how long have humans believed in ghosts? Well, according to Irving Finkel, the curator of ancient Mesopotamian script, languages and cultures at the British Museum... Evidence of ghost beliefs can be found all the way back in the very oldest written sources that we have, and possibly even further. In his new book, The First Ghosts, Irving unpicks what we can learn about supernatural beliefs from ancient Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets. I spoke to him to find out more. Your book takes us back to ancient Mesopotamia to uncover the first evidence that we have for humanity's belief in ghosts. And you say that your own personal conclusion is that most, possibly even all human beings everywhere, really, truly believe in ghosts. To start us off on that idea, why do you believe that? Why do you think that we're so eager to think that the the dead might return to exist among us? Well, one of the reasons is this, that um, there's so much testimony all over the world for such a long period of time. Because in the modern world, ghosts have a funny status because people don't talk about them very freely because if they do in front of somebody who doesn't believe in them, they think they're an idiot. So on the whole, people don't wear their ghosts on their sleeve. But when you look into the matter historically... It is extraordinary that with the first writing that we have, which is this cuneiform writing, we have lots and lots of evidence. Now, the thing is, in the British Museum, we have stuff, archaeological stuff from all over the world, all the cultures of the world, 
before writing and then the beginning of writing and afterwards. And the beginning of writing is about 3000 BC, something like that, um, in ancient Iraq, the country which is today Iraq used to be called Mesopotamia by the Greeks. And it's that landscape that sometimes you hear about at school with the Euphrates and Tigris rivers and the bit in between. And in that bit in between, lots of things seem to have been developed for the first time, including writing. So these people, the Sumerians, and after them, the Babylonians, they use clay as a writing material. Now, you would never think that would be sensible because it's so messy, especially when you do it at school or in the kitchen. But in fact, the kind of clay they used took very good, sharp impressions. And when it was dried in the sun, it lasted forever. So when archaeology kicked in, in the middle of the 19th century, thousands of these little messages written on pieces of clay um, came to light and formed a major part of our archaeological historical knowledge. So if you're interested in the history of ghosts, which I've always been, um, the marvellous thing is that the first writing we have, the oldest writing, tells us all about what people believed on this very subject. And what is important about it is that when you, if you learn to read Babylonian, it will only take you 20 years, and when you master the grammar and you can translate these mad things for yourself, when you read these things in English today, these messages, it is extraordinarily how familiar the world of ghosts is at the beginning of the story as we can see it. When you buried somebody in Mesopotamia, um, because people definitely died, you put them down there under the ground and they were supposed to stay there. That's the general human thing. And like everywhere else in the world, people who were supposed to be down there and stay there didn't always do so. And the Babylonian scribes who write down spells for getting rid of ghosts, what they like to do is make a list of them, all the different kinds, so that the ghost who's in the house they want to get rid of discovers, oh, they know who I am. So they get the power over the ghost. So they say, whether you are a ghost who died in a fire, who was run over by a chariot, or was drowned in a well, or died in childbirth, or all these, there's about 30 different possible ghosts. Whether you are one of these, or one, we know who you are. It's like, we know where you live. Go back where you belong. And there's a whole slew of simple spells, complicated rituals, amulets, all this kind of stuff to get rid of them. But the underlying story is familiar. This is it. If a ghost is unhappy, if a dead person's ghost in the underworld is unhappy, they can come back. So if they had a miserable death, they'll come back. If they don't get the offerings they're due, they come back and they come into people's houses and they make them jump and they pull their hair and they get in the way and they follow them around. And sometimes they're very unpleasant and make them ill and all this kind of stuff. And the crucial point about it, which is so astonishing to me, is this that from the king on the throne to the beggar in the street, the whole population, say in 2500 BC, for certain, didn't believe in ghosts. They took them for granted. So this was a time in the history of the world where among all the other things you had to deal with, children and housing and warfare and disease, all those other things, ghosts were part of the scenario. And the thing is this, Ellie, that this pattern that people really take it for granted exists all over the world. Now, 
I have to support this claim is one very important piece of evidence. You know that there's been a lot of talk about the relationship between Homo sapiens at the outset of their time and the Neanderthals with whom they overlapped and to a certain extent they interacted with them. We know this because of DNA. But the interesting thing is this, and I didn't know about it till I started writing this book, that there are Neanderthal graves where the body is laid out um, in a special position, in a prepared grave, with bits and pieces. So we take for granted bits and pieces when it comes to human beings, but also there's Neanderthals. It might be only a bead, it might be a bit of something or other, but the point is this. If you bury somebody in the ground because they're smelly and dangerous, you want to get rid of them, that is one thing. But if you bury them in a special grave with bits, it means that your expectation is that once the horrible chemicals have gone, some thing comes out, which is the essence of the person, and it goes somewhere. So I think burial goods means afterlife. However simple, however vague, and that's it. But the thing is, if we have the afterlife at the point when Homo sapiens and Neanderthals were first getting engaged and going on honeymoon together, this means that the conception that something survives after death goes back to the dawn of mankind. And my idea is this, if something goes and disappears over there, then it can go and come back. And so if you have death, burial, afterlife and going somewhere, the ghost is an intrinsic part of the whole. So I think we are hardwired to believe in ghosts. I really believe it. And the most austere, clever, inaccessible scientist in two white coats at once will look at you like you're an idiot and an insect. But you could play a trick on them just unexpectedly. And they wouldn't go like that like everybody else because it's underneath the skin, I believe. Mm. Well, you've covered off a lot of my points here already in one question, but I want to pick up on a point that you made there about ghosts being taken for granted and something that you you reiterate in the book is that they weren't seen as metaphors, um, they were seen as literal realities. Why is that so important to understand? And can you give us some examples of what a literal ghost could literally get up to? Yes, absolutely. I think it's a literal matter because, for example, um, the oldest son in the house was responsible for offerings of food and drink to his dead family, who often were buried under the floor of the courtyard in the house where people lived. And they needed water and food because the understanding of the underworld was it wasn't very hospitable. It was a bit like one of those air and BB when you get there when there are no towels and things like that, or no electricity. They had this responsibility to look after these ghosts in the sense of propagating prayers in their honour and and remembering them all the time, talking about them and looking after them with mechanical things. When ghosts come back, the explanations which are provided are not metaphorical, they are literal. And there's a big difference between them because in our world, when we talk about the unknown and we talk about everything, love, death and meaning and universe and all that, most people use either poetry or circumvention to talk about what they're talking about. So we are used to the mechanism whereby elusive human matters are 
not quite themselves, but they're over there and they're a kind of way of talking about them. But they didn't have a way of talking about them. They believed in them. And this is a situation which I think persists. For example, I've been many times to India and in villages in India and um, anybody you sit down and talk to on the floor you ask them about whether there's a ghost they'll have a hundred stories immediately isn't it? either them or their uncle their grandfather or people yes and you remember this one and you know and all that kind of thing this is kind of what I regard as the natural relationship between homo sapiens and the ghost tradition and that in many parts of the world it survives unspoiled Mm. So, so in the ancient Mesopotamian context, how does this belief in ghosts as an everyday reality connect to the wider belief system of deities and gods? Should we see it as part of that system or should we see it as something independent? That's a very good and very interesting question. Now, the thing is, they had a big pantheon of gods, gods and goddesses, lots and lots of them, some big, some important, and they had ritual and prayer and all that. But on the whole, the belief about Burying the dead, what happened to the dead and dealing with them, was slightly unrelated to the prevailing main religion. There there are two crucial things. One is they had no idea in Mesopotamia, they were very lucky, that bad behaviour in this life meant a terrible time in the world to come. They had none of that rubbish. And in my opinion, it was a disastrous invention because it dislocated responsibility and everybody spent the whole of their lives fretting about it. They didn't have this trouble. So in a way, a burial was buried proper and if they came back, the priests, the exorcists who knew the spells would be recruited to drive the ghost back. Now, it wasn't independent of religion because the priests used the power of the gods in the pantheon, took their names, Ishtar, the goddess of love, and the Ningeshin Anna who wrote the in-book and out-book where people were supposed to be, and all the major powerful gods who specialised in magic. They were dragged in to deal with the ghosts. So, you know, I suppose you could say, some people would say that when we talk about religion in the modern world and how it was in the ancient world as it were they didn't have a word for religion it was a system that was all pervading and the interaction with ghosts as it were traded on it was part of it but it wasn't centrally what we would call a religious matter it was more of a traditional matter i think so we've spoken about ghosts coming back from the dead but were they always figures to be frightened of? Because in later centuries, there's an idea of ghosts coming perhaps to impart wisdom or offer comfort. Was there any sense of that side of ghosts in ancient Mesopotamia? Another jolly good question, because in the later tradition, clanking ghosts in hotel rooms are usually bringing frightening messages about that's the end of you. Now, I think this, in Mesopotamia, because people tended to live in extended families and great-grandfathers died and grandfathers finally died and you know there was a kind of cycle and they were down there it was a slightly family-ish thing and i think if it was a ghost of the family they had sympathy for them they had sympathy i think they were frightened of them they were startled and they were sometimes made unhappy by ghosts if they tormented them and followed them around but if it was a familiar ghost I feel that the basic position was a kind of sympathy. If sympathy and doing the obvious things didn't work, then you'd pay an exorcist to come and the exorcist would use heavy heavy tools to get rid of them and, and stuff like that. So ghosts of this kind, your own stock, you had a kind of sympathy with, I believe. Now, the other thing was, of course, there were lots of other ghosts 
who are nothing to do with your family, who might be very dangerous indeed. They can make you very ill. They can go into your ear. They can torment you. They can make you physically very ill indeed. And there were lots of unknown ghosts um, floating about. So, for example, you can imagine after a battle, thousands of dead soldiers, they wouldn't be buried properly. They'd be floating about. And the first thing they do is go to Babylon and make life hell for anybody who was still living there. One form of exorcism was to drive out the unknown ghosts. There was a kind of collection of um, traditions that when you see a ghost, on the whole, it wasn't good news. On the whole, it wasn't. But it wasn't that you're going to die in three days or the world's coming to an end or all that kind of stuff. It was more, there's a danger that you need to do something about which could be averted. Now, they also believed, as we do believe today, or many people do, that ghosts are in possession of a knowledge of the future. So go back to your specific question. It was understood that sometimes that if a ghost appeared and they didn't say anything, People thought they had a communication they wanted to make. And there are one or two spells to try and encourage the ghost to answer questions. And the most amazing ones were when you, you had a whole full-blown ritual when you procured the skull of probably the person you wanted to interrogate, like your great-aunt. Maybe it could be retrieved from the thing under the floor. So it's plonked on the table, covered in oil, and the exorcist, who knows all these words, burns incense and all this stuff, and they call upon the sun god to bring up from there, from the shades, this person who's supposed to go into the skull, and we're going to ask it questions. So the exorcist runs all this, and you can imagine the client who thought, oh, I know, I'll ask Aunt Mary or something like that. But when the time came, he was probably terribly, terribly frightened himself. And this skull is sitting there like that, and it's supposed to answer you words like that. So I don't think you do that in a flippant way. But what it does illustrate is um, the origin of the idea that ghosts knew what was going to happen, and that sometimes they might tell you. So the things that are familiar today in 19th century novels, in films, have their antecedents, their origins, but they're not so distorted and dramatic and horror-filled as they are later. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The big difference between a demon and a ghost, at least in this culture, and in fact in general it must hold true, is that a ghost is a dead human being. And their component material is the same as a human being. Whereas a demon is not a human being. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. 
Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. And so we know all of this from these cuneiform tablets, right? So would it be fair to say that these acted as essentially instruction manuals? You know, if you have a ghost doing this, find an exorcist who can help you out with yeah. this kind of spell, this kind of amulet, yeah. and that's how it worked. So they're different things. One is a whole list of what it means if you see a ghost. So some of them are quite detailed. Um, for example, if, um, if you see a ghost in the bedroom, it means your uncle is going to die. Okay, something grim like that, or you will lose all your money. So those are grim things, but there were specialists who, if they knew you'd had a dream like that, um, there was a special concomitant form of magic which could dispel the threatened matter. So an omen wasn't a fixed fate. It was, as a result of this, this is in the air. This could be a thing. There were quite a lot of specialists, and one of the specialists knew if someone had a very disturbing dream or they saw a ghost in the house and it looked bad, they would do something to propitiate the ghost and deter the danger. So that's that's one activity. Then there are all these spells, and some are very simple and some are multi-complex. But um, one of my favourite spells is this. It's, it's for someone who keeps seeing a ghost. So the exorcist makes some preparation on the ground and burns some stuff, of course, and does this, that, and the other. And then the, the person has to recite this spell. You who keep persecuting me, I'm not going to Cutha, he says. I'm not going to Cutha. Now, Cutha was a city in Babylonia where the entrance to the underworld was. It was a, there was a big temple for the underworld god, and I think the ghosts who came up sometimes came up that way. So you get the idea that these ghosts are going, come with us, like that. I'm not going with you. No. Uh, he gets all these goddesses to stand by him, the underworld goddesses, by, and she's going to tell you off, and she's going to write your name and scrub it out, and she's going to tell you, and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's fantastic because... You can see that the, the, the gods of normal life, although they're very busy, when it comes to it, will come over and swack this ghost. And um, it, when, when you read it in English, it's astonishing that, that, that this is a dialogue. That you can imagine there's a lot of build-up for it and probably a certain amount of expense as well in order to deliver this to the ghost. And then it's something that you might say yourself, you know, piss off, I'm living here, go back to your underworld gloom. Well, can I pick up on your point about the underworld? Because I know you, you said that it's, it's a, as you say, a gloomy place and there isn't necessarily a moral judgment involved in the underworld. But could you tell us a bit more detail about what it was thought to consist of? What was the atmosphere meant to be like? Yes. Well, um, we've got two sorts of evidence. One is a series of literary texts which describe the underworld because the goddess Inanna, the very beautiful goddess, her lover was imprisoned in the underworld and she had to go down there. So there's a marvellous narrative when she goes through all the seven gates which are manned by ferocious gatekeepers all the way down to the underworld where her sister is queen in order to sort out this problem. And the thing about it is it's like this. Um, it's very gloomy indeed. And there's no real light and all the ghosts 
hang about, they seem to have feathers in the dust, and they live off dust and clay, and they're hanging about and hanging about, and um, their numbers increase every five minutes. People die, more than come down, more than come down. And it's a kind of dreadful waiting place where nobody's very quite certain what they're waiting for. So um, the ghosts um, obviously were conceived in this underprivileged environment to be short of food and drink. So that is why the ritual evolved of pouring drinks and adding food down this special pipe which went theoretically down to the underworld to look after them while they were there. So it is very gloomy and one gets the impression of them all being like dusty penguins with their shoulders together, just hanging them and swaying or something like this, like a Mervyn Peak drawing. So it is not hell in the sense of uh, burning pitchforks and, and, and devils laughing at you and, and pulling your nose. It's more um, a kind of interregnum. And of course, if you do believe that, the fact that ghosts want to come back has a whole different dimension. Because if it's so horrible there, why wouldn't they want to go back to the sunny world of ancient Iraq where they had all their lovely time? So we have this construction, and this is how the poets describe the underworld. To the house of darkness, the seat of Irkala, to the house from where no one who enters can leave, to the journey from which there is no going back, to the house whose dwellers are deprived of light, where dust is their sustenance, clay their food, they see no light dwelling in darkness. They are clad like birds, with wings as garments, on door and bolt, dust gathers. So you've got this picture, but um, the other side of the picture is this, what people took with them when they were buried. And we have graves of all kinds, rich and poor, and everybody in between. But when you look at the archaeological stuff that they took, it's all to do with normal daily life. And if you were rich, you had everything. And if you were poor, you had what you had. But the picture that derives from what was considered to be what a dead person would need in the world to come is not really in keeping with this poetic literary structure. So um, there's a woman called Caitlin Barrett who wrote a marvellous article about this, and I quite agree with her. Something else that I wanted to ask you about that you talk about in the book is what you somewhat brilliantly call the delicate art of necromancy. So how would you go about summoning someone back from the underworld, and why would you want to do that? Well, um, the, the, the mechanism, the use of the skull... Uh, is, is uh, which the the necromancer relied on is a very intelligible thing because if some person is going to come and answer questions, <clears throat> they need a voice box. They need a kind of communication system. So as I said, they use a skull with special spells, and the, the dead person is encouraged to go into the skull, and therefore you can ask him questions, and he will answer. So it's not about bringing them back for them to experience more of the world. It's about bringing them back to get some answers. And then send them back jolly quick. Because what you rightly call the manuals, the manual for necromancy, has the spell to bring up the ghost. And it tells you, whatever you ask him, he will tell you, and you do all that. But thereafter, the scribe underneath has given you a whole load of spells to get rid of him as soon as possible. Because the last thing you want to do is to bring up a ghost for a chat and then let them go off around the world. So there was a kind of 
safety clause built into that manual. And we don't know how often people did that. As I think it's must have, as I say, quite frightening to to have that, however cool a person and callous a person you were, I think, to watch a skull till it started to speak would make you pretty damn jumpy. And we have only a few cases of it, but maybe they did a lot of it. It's quite possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spoken mainly about ordinary people, but what about the very elite of Mesopotamian society. So what can we infer from their burials? And something I want to ask you specifically about was that you give an example of how disrespecting the dead could be used to political ends. Ah, yes. Well, it's quite a revealing matter because um, the elite uh, were buried... I mean, everybody knows about Tutankhamun, what went with the, with, with the young Egyptian king. Well, the idea that royalty took gold and furniture and, and weapons and uh, the highest quality materials with them into the next world was a kind of general pattern. But in fact, it's not really any different from normal people because they have a few things and the very elite have the best and most expensive things. But it's the same basic principle. What is interesting about... Um, what you might call the interplay of political ghost work on the highest level, is that we have this um, example of the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, who had an ongoing military trouble over the eastern border with the Elamites in what is now Iran. And in a particularly regrettable state of military fury, when they were in the capital in Elam, they ravaged the tombs of the old Elamite kings and scattered their bones, took them back to Mesopotamia, thereby imposing eternal unrest on the rulers of their hated enemy. And... um, It's described in the official annals, what you might call the government statement, and that this activity would bring, as it were, eternal unrest to these people is expressly stated. And it's another example of not being a metaphor or, you know, a clever use of language, but it was jolly well what happened. And what enforces it even more is that Later, when Nineveh itself, where Ashurbanipal was king, sometime after his reign, the Assyrian Empire was conquered, and the Babylonians from southern Iraq, like, and um, the these Elamites from Iran, they ganged up on the Assyrians and they they beat them, unheard of thing, and they sacked the palace and they defaced the carvings of the king and the gods which were on the walls of the palace and in one case this is such a stirring matter there was a picture of the Assyrian king carved as they always are on those Assyrian beliefs you know with his high hat and fine bearing and everything and a bow and arrow and the bow was broken and the wrists were cut and the eyes were cut so the sculpted image by the enemy in the palace was disfigured and made powerless and one of these Elamites with a chisel and a hammer picked out on the stone right opposite the Assyrian king like nose to nose a a recognisable portrait of an Elamite king because the Elamite king had a special shaped crown. And so some Elamite decided, knowing what they did before, smarting still from this indignity about their own ancestors, plonked in front of the um, disfigured, denatured Assyrian king 
an outline which is for anybody who knew that was the Elamite. And for the rest of time, the Elamite is putting a finger up to the Assyrian. It gives us a dish where the whole of the reality of the, the, the ghost afterlife thing is unmistakable. There's no part of it that you can, oh, well, it's just a poetic or just a symbolic or nothing of the kind. It's stark iron, 100% clear. So that, that to me, is a deeply significant thing about this culture with regard to the whole ghost business. I'm going to cycle back round now to something that I probably should have asked you right at the start of this conversation, which is just what the earliest reference to a ghost is that we have in these texts. Moving on from that, the earliest ghost story. Well, the, 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 what, what we have in cuneiform is hundreds of signs. It's not like when you just learn the alphabet and then you go off and do the writing. There are hundreds of signs you have to learn, and some are simple and some are complex. And there's quite a complicated sign, which means ghost. And this was deciphered in the 19th century. And I think the oldest tablet that has this sign on is about 2800 BC. So there's actually a document made of clay with this sign, in a sentence, of course, not on its own, um, showing at that day, at that time, if you'd tap this Sumerian on the shoulder and say, what does that mean? He would have gone, well, it, um, it, it's a ghost. It's, it's not a thing you can translate very easily, unfortunately, but it's, it's undoubtedly the sign for ghost. And th thereafter, um, over the centuries, the material comes more and more richly, more and more abundantly. So I, I think um, we can be sure that... Um, uh, that everybody in that culture and everybody who preceded them for a very long time had known what this word meant and they used it. As I, as I learned from your book, there were also demons, which were slightly different to ghosts. How were they different? What were they? And what can you tell us about them? Well, they had lots and lots of demons, um, some of whom we know quite intimately and some not so intimately. The big difference between a demon and a ghost, at least in this culture, and in fact in general it must hold true, is that a ghost is a dead human being. And their component material is the same as a human being. Whereas a demon is not a human being. It has a kind of component within its structure which is alien. We don't know what it is. So human beings die and their essence, which becomes the ghost, is one thing and demons are immortal you cannot kill a demon whatever you do and they are like superannuated versions of human beings so they not only are they immortal but they have this extra component which gives them a kind of energy so i think um whereas if you confront a ghost and meet a ghost um if you're lucky, they're not really malevolent and wicked. They might be, but you might find one who's just miserable. Um, I don't think you'll find a miserable demon. Demons are characterised by evil behaviour, and some are worse than others, but they are horrible. So, but the most important thing about the demon is they had no heart in the sense that we do. The, the demonic forces are either anthropomorphic in other words, they're basically like human beings with other characteristics, or they're kind of dragony, um, or combinations of the two. So, for example, one of the worst demons of all is this Lamashtu, who, um, like pregnant ladies and their newborn babies, and um, 
she, um, was a woman with long hair and, and breasts and looked like a woman at first sight, but she had talons and her feet were similarly reptilian looking. She had wings and very frightening kind of mixture overlaid on a basically anthropomorphic kind of figure. Finally, in conclusion, I just wanted to ask you why you think it's so interesting to go back to the very earliest evidence that we have about ghosts and what you think it can tell us about humanity's relationship with the idea of death more generally. Ghosts is a kind of persistent reality in the, in, in, in the human thinking and in, hu- in the human world. And it's always interesting to try and discover with long-running things when they started. And I'm, as I said at the outset, convinced that um, it started when we started. And if that is true, um, if it's built into the human psyche, that this is, that we we don't completely die, that we go somewhere and maybe sometimes we come back. If that is a sort of um, pattern for belief, um, it is extraordinary how, in the world's literature of all kinds, it is substantiated that the people still hold this belief and they hold it, I think, in a way that can't really be removed, even if they want... It's very difficult to expunge it because I think it's been there since the beginning. So um, one of the things that um, was very exciting about working on these texts was feeling a kind of empathy with the Mesopotamians for whom this was a problem, in whose life this existed, more or less to an extent, obviously. But um, I thought you could only write about it with empathy. In other words, not asking yourself, of course, if ghosts really existed, what did they do? I just took it from them, as, that, where, where that's not a question that was worth asking, but what they did because they existed. And it doesn't mean to say that I believe in ghosts personally, or it's nothing to do with me. It's, it's more of a um, a way of finding the, in, in the text a voice that you can recognise. And the voice that is distilled from it is something which is, I think, still vibrant. So that makes it very interesting to me. So this sort of thing is to be found absolutely all over the world. So the, the, the idea that you can't rest in peace, you can't get clearance, you can't resolve your life if the way you left it was violent or unhappy or awkward is, is, is part of this whole matter. It's part of the whole matter. And I'll tell you one other thing that strikes me, that all the religions of the world believe that something of a human being is departs from the body when the person dies. All religions do this. They say blithe, you go there, you go there. But everybody takes it for granted. So um, I can't see for the life of me what the difference is between that and the ghost. I just cannot understand the difference. I've been all around it in my head. And the only thing I can understand about it is this, that when a clergyman says that, well, your dear husband's spirit is somewhere over there, you know, like that kind of thing, the only difference between that and what other people will say is a ghost is that you can see ghosts. That's the only difference. So I think they're all one and the same, and all the religions believe in this without admitting it. One of the reasons I wrote this book is um, that there are lots and lots of books about ghosts, and 
there's a general feeling, I think, that they were invented in the 19th century or maybe in the Middle Ages or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. And not many writers um, even talk about the marvellous stuff from Greece and Rome where it's astonishing what exists, much more than we have, but more has been written about it. But there's not much known about Mesopotamia. And I'm interested in... Um, people knowing about cuneiform writing and all the marvellous things we have in it, not just ghosts. I mean, that's only one small chapter. So I thought it would, it, what it would do is put Mesopotamia on the ghost map. And the people who worry about these things and their history, at least they will know and have some evidence to show that it, it is truly old and truly unchanging. That was Irving Finkel. His book, The First Ghosts, Most Ancient of Legacies, is available to pre-order now, published on the 11th of November by Hachette. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Are you enjoying the History Extra podcast and want to delve a bit deeper into history? Why not take out a subscription for BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine, and receive a brand new book of your choice worth £25. Choose from either Powers and Thrones by Dan Jones, a signed edition, The Anglo-Saxons by Mark Morris, Crown and Sceptre by Tracy Borman, or Soldiers by Max Hastings. Your subscription includes delivery of every issue right to your door. Receive all of this for just £22.45 every six issues. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash myhistorybook. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. See our website for further details. Overseas subscription prices are available online.